Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 6th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the 15th message in our series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. In the 1980s, when I was in youth and young adult group at our church, we had this thing where we would uh, get together and have a sing-song time. We called them campfire songs because often we would be sitting around a campfire singing these songs. But also we could be in someone's living room singing these songs that were quite sentimental in nature and they helped us kind of draw together really close. We talked a lot about unity in those days, um, sharing around that circle, praying for one another and singing Kumbaya. Now we really did love each other. I mean, we were a group of friends that went to church together and did a lot of fun stuff, but the unity of the group could easily be fractured. I mean, it only took one person breaking up from another person in a dating relationship and pretty soon your softball team was wrecked. Now, one of the songs we sang was called Kumbaya. And Kumbaya means come by here. Uh, It was a famous campfire song, actually, that we used to sing. It typified our worship times that was speaking to our unity. Our unity in God, of course. Uh, The song actually has some long-standing history. It was written in 1926 by a person named H. Wiley, but they actually don't know what the H stands for. It's just H. Wiley. It originally carried an idea of God coming near uh, to overthrow the evil oppressors of the people that they were under. In the 1960s, it became kind of a common song that was sung by the peaceful demonstration movement of the civil rights to signify their solidarity together. Well, by the 1980s, when I was in youth group, it had kind of been downgraded to an evangelical campfire song reflecting our unity, which wasn't all bad. But if you were with us last Sunday, you will know that Pastor Tim preached the message on unity. In Acts chapter 15, the church was threatened by a situation that really could divide them. The Jewish believers and the Gentile believers were being tested with whether or not they could be one in Christ or if they needed to start two separate church groups. But they did not separate. They found their way forward by the grace of God and they came up with a solution. It might even be called some concessions in order for the church to be one and not two. Now to ensure this unity in the church of Antioch, which is where this issue kind of surfaced, it was in a Gentile Syrian territory, a Roman city, and so it was a church that was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, Greek-speaking people, and they needed to know that they were a part of this same church movement that was happening in Jerusalem. And so to ensure that, the leaders in Jerusalem sent some of their brothers to go down there and to help encourage them in the Lord to keep this unity. So here's how it's written in Acts chapter 15. So the men were sent off from Jerusalem and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So, you know, not only is this letter really well-received by those Christians in Antioch, but the whole process of sending these brothers in Christ to go down there and hand-deliver the letter to then encourage them with these words, it just left them with a really good feeling. So that's where Pastor Tim took us last week. It was a kumbaya moment in the life of the church. The unity was kept. And um, 
and they did not divide. But you and I know that it always doesn't, it doesn't always work out that way. That the kumbaya moments just aren't there. And sometimes you've been a part of that, right? Maybe in a church meeting uh, where it didn't quite turn out the way you would want it to. There's been more than one church meeting that's felt like that. But also it happens in our relationships with people, not just in the church setting. Um, it's hard to find the agreement and the accommodation to help us get to, um, to a meeting of the minds. Where two people really stand together with one mind on something. Often... There's a parting of ways. There isn't the reconciliation of the differences that we'd hoped there would be. It's more of a can we agree to disagree approach than it is actually finding middle ground. So what do we do then? When I was a much younger person, I believe I was around 30 years old when this took place, I was called in to be a part of a, discern, a discernment team to help two brothers in leadership um, come to an understanding because there had been a rift between them. Now, I was very optimistic about this. I, I knew both parties quite well. I had actually heard the concerns. I knew about the ripple effect it was having in our church at the time. Um, I had served previously as a youth pastor to the families on both sides. And so I was, I was well acquainted and I knew both people. And I came in quite confident that we were going to be able to find middle ground, reconciliation, and unity would be protected. But as we sat in the circle and tried to help two brothers come to that moment of reconciliation. I soon found how difficult it can be to get two parties to reconcile when neither of them believe they need to. When neither of them believe that they have offended the other person or been offended by the other person. No hard feelings at all. Nothing more need to be done. <laughs> really? I thought to myself, because you could cut the tension with a knife in the room and everyone else in the church knew what was going on but it didn't seem like there was a way forward. The reality is that sometimes it takes time for people to be able to process through these kinds of situations. And where I thought it was just going to be a quick response and a resolve and we'd get back on track, and sometimes that does happen. But you know, more often than not, I think it does take time for two brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters to come to a place of true healing uh, in a process that allows them to move forward. Now, today's story comes still out of Acts 15, where we just heard about the unity of the church. We're going to hear about a disunity, about something that didn't seem to quite land quite right. Now, for most of us, we're going to know this story quite well. It is definitely lacking a kumbaya moment between these two guys, Paul and Barnabas. I mean, these guys are like probably best friends, definitely very close friends, and they've been longtime ministry partners, and you probably know the story well. They've gone out on a missionary journey, and uh, they've come to a sharp disagreement when they want to go out a second time over whether or not they should take John Mark along with them because John Mark had deserted them, is how Paul put it, at one point in the first journey. So this disagreement between these two guys. Now, let's talk about these two guys for a minute because these are well-known names. If you have read through Acts, you know how often Paul and Barnabas' names go together. Uh, these are the same two guys that two weeks ago, Pastor David Lee preached on in Acts 13, where the Holy Spirit said to the church in Antioch, set aside for me for the work that I've called them to, Paul and Barnabas. To do what? Actually, it was Barnabas and Saul. Um, kind of noting the order in which it was said in Acts 13, that Barnabas's name came first, and then Paul, or Saul, his name came second. Set apart these two for the work I've called them to do, which was what? Well, that's when they went out on their first missionary journey to all these different cities in the area of what would be modern-day Turkey. It was Gentile territory. 
So they were called to take the gospel to the Gentile. Now these are also the same two guys who last week in Pastor Tim's message, so two weeks ago they come up in Dave's message, last week they come up in Tim's message because in Jerusalem when there was this council, this meeting that was going on where they were trying to resolve whether or not the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians would be one in Christ without the Gentile Christians being circumcised according to the law of Moses. So there was this issue of contention between them. And as they wrestled through that, Paul and Barnabas stood up and shared about their experiences in the Gentile churches, where the Spirit of God had worked in the exact same way that the Spirit of God had worked in the Jerusalem church. In other words, God was at work through his gospel, saving Gentile people in the same way that he saved Jewish people, regardless of the law, independent of circumcision. These are also the same two guys that after that meeting in Jerusalem, they also went back to Antioch with that letter in hand, and they stayed in Antioch, and they preached there to the people of Antioch. So what happened? If these two guys were involved in so many things together, what went wrong? Let's read our story. Acts 15, I'll start at verse 35 and then read through to 41. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, also, uh, pardon me, John also called Mark with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicily, uh, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, we might read this and think to ourselves, really, like, why is this such a big deal? I mean, why don't you want to take John Mark along on the mission trip, right? We might even think, surely, come on, Paul, just lighten up a little bit and give John Mark a second time, you know, a do-over. He's a God on the mulligans. Come on, Paul, let John Mark come. Or we might look at Barnabas and think, you know, Barnabas, you're really digging your heels in here. Maybe Paul is actually bringing wise counsel to this situation. Maybe the kind of work that you're doing as missionaries is so demanding that to take along a person who has already deserted you once, that becomes very cumbersome on the work that God calls us to. Maybe you should just leave him in Antioch a bit longer, let him mature a little bit more, and he'll be ready for another day. So either one of these two people could have given in to the other, but they had a sharp disagreement, so much so Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas. You know, to us, it doesn't sound like much of a problem to overcome. But what might be helpful for us to understand as to why this was so difficult is for us to step into their shoes, to kind of know Paul and Barnabas, their personality, what makes them who they are, their character, and their sense of calling. So let's take a moment and look at these two guys, Paul first. Here's just a bit of a, a thumbnail sketch, okay? We know that Paul was a high-minded religious person before he comes to faith in Christ, right? Like, this guy was zealous in his makeup, disciplined as a Pharisee, well-trained, studied. That was his nature. Well, after he comes to faith in Christ, a lot of that just 
carries over into how he now approaches his faith in Christ and how he approaches his calling in Christ. We would call Paul probably a bold person, maybe even a little bit crazy at times. I mean, in one situation in Lystra, he'd been sharing the gospel and the people stone him and they drag him outside of the city and they leave him for dead. And when he comes to, he goes back into the city. Like, who does that? And then another time in Philippi, he was wrongly beaten as a Roman citizen and left in jail overnight. And in the morning when the leaders, the religious, I mean, not the religious leaders, the governing authorities realized that he was a Roman citizen and they had made a mistake in beating him, they want to release Paul quietly. You can go. (laughs) And Paul says, no way, Jose. You beat me as a Roman citizen. You guys who made that decision, you come down to the prison and you can usher me out of, the, out of the city personally. And they did. But who does that, right? I mean, you've just been beaten and thrown in stocks. I mean, really beaten. If you read the story, it's horrible. Most people would say, okay, thank you very much. I'm released. I'll just lay low. I'm out of here. I'm gone, right? Not Paul. No. You guys come down here. You take me out. No way, Jose. Paul brought this single-mindedness to his calling. His determination to live out the one thing he felt called by God to do, which was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, Galatians 1.15, his own words, he says, God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And he was preaching that gospel in Corinthians to Gentiles. Another verse here. He even makes a point (laughs) of saying this in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. (laughs) Now, I don't think he's trying to say that baptism wasn't important. Or that he himself didn't ever baptize. Because he did. He baptized some at least. But his point was this. I know what my mission, I know what my calling is. And Christ has called me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he did never want to compromise that mission. So here's how it looked for Paul. It, it looked for Paul like this. Paul's conviction is on his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And taking John Mark along might compromise that mission. So he just can't do that. For Barnabas, it looks different. Um, in Acts 4, 6, we're told that he, his name is actually Joseph, uh, but he has a nickname. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And I think we can pick up on there that if, if, if they call him this nickname, then to be around this guy is that feeling you have where it's like, man, I'm built up, I'm encouraged. This guy makes me feel better about myself. And maybe the spirit of generosity that is identified here in this passage in Acts 4 goes along with his spirit of encouragement, Right? He's just one of these warmer kind of people to be around. So he's starting to get the sense. You know, Paul might be a little bit on the prickly side, and Barnabas seems to be really on the warm side here. His nickname is backed up by his actions. It was Barnabas who comes alongside Paul when Paul first became a follower of Christ. When he has that Damascus Road conversion experience, Barnabas is the one who takes the chance on Paul. Other people were scared of him. They were like, I don't know that we can actually trust him to be a true disciple of Christ. Maybe he's just using that as a cover to get in and find out who the believers are, and then he's going to continue persecuting. After all, it was Paul who dragged off to prison both men and women. And it was Paul who stood giving his approval 
when Stephen was being stoned? How could these people trust him? And verse 27 of Acts 9 says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Wow. You know what that tells me? It tells me that while Barnabas was an encourager, he was also bold in his own way. He was courageous in his own way. In Acts 11, when the main church in Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Antioch, so the main Jewish church in Jerusalem hears about the work that's going on in Antioch, which is this more Gentile-type church, they decided they wanted to inquire and observe what was going on. So they sent someone down there. And who did they choose to send? They chose to send our guy Barnabas. Why? Because Barnabas was mature. Barnabas was a trusted leader. Barnabas would go with a spirit of encouragement. They knew that. And so they send Barnabas down to the church in Antioch. The first thing that Barnabas does is he calls Paul and says, come and join me. I need you to help preach here in Antioch. So here's how it goes. Acts 11, news of this, the working of God in Antioch, reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Isn't that an awesome statement? Like, wouldn't you love that on your tombstone, right? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's Barnabas. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tar Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And together they stayed and preached. Then what happens in Antioch is that this church hears that in Jerusalem there's a famine. And so what they decide is to take up an offering. And in taking up this offering, they're now going to send it to Jerusalem. But you've got you know, you to carry money, and it's a dangerous thing, and you want trusted people. And so who do they choose? They choose Paul and Barnabas to take this gift. And Paul and Barnabas, after they've delivered this gift to Jerusalem, they've been there for a time, and now they're going to come back to their home church in Antioch. Guess who they bring back with them? John Mark. John Mark. The one that they had this issue with eventually. It's most likely the connection between John Mark and Barnabas is that they're cousins. Probably Barnabas, an older cousin. Colossians 4.10 says that they're cousins. And uh, it's also evident that Barnabas wanted to disciple him and encourage him in his faith and bring him along to be a leader in the church. Then what happens in Acts chapter 13, we find out that the church in Antioch, you know, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, says to Paul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit wants you to go and be missionaries and take the gospel to the Gentiles, so we're sending you out, they commission them. And who do they take on this journey? John Mark. That's their first journey. But in Acts 13, it also tells us at a certain point on this journey that John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say why, but it's evident that it doesn't sit well with Paul. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John Mark left to return to Jerusalem. And later on, Paul would say, he deserted us. So this ministry team of Paul and Barnabas came about because Barnabas himself was the one who took a chance on Paul and nurtured him, giving him opportunity to use his gifts that obviously God had given him, growing him to be a ministry leader on Barnabas' team. It was always Barnabas and Saul way before it was Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was the team leader. Barnabas was the one who had encouraged Paul along. And it was in his nature to nurture people. So Barnabas brings that now to John Mark. For him, 
he couldn't imagine not taking John Mark along. Paul says, you can't take him along. He's going to wreck our mission. Barnabas is like, what are you talking about? We have to take him along because that's how more people grow into having this mission. And so Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement. Paul's was a conviction and a calling. Barnabas's was a conviction and a calling. Without Paul's conviction to preach the gospel and to keep it clear and to keep it central because there's another situation that you can read about in Galatians 2 where Barnabas and Peter start to kind of waffle on the gospel. uh, Paul keeps them straight. So Paul's clarity on the gospel and Paul's conviction to the gospel was needed for another hundred generations to pass on the clarity of the gospel message and to not have it compromised. But at the same time, without Barnabas, you wouldn't even have the Apostle Paul. Without Barnabas, you would not even have John Mark, who goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. So who's right? Who's wrong? Is Paul wrong? No. Is Barnabas wrong? No. Were Paul and Barnabas, were they enemies? No, they weren't enemies. They had a disagreement. They even had a sharp disagreement. It just simply means that they couldn't find their way forward together. They disagreed. But they didn't hate each other. Could this situation have panned out differently? Oh, yes, for sure it could have. Was God able to use it for good in spite of their disagreement? Yes, he did. Sometimes leaders in the church have two different callings or passions or even strong ideas about what needs to be done or how to go about doing it. Mission agencies often have different styles or philosophies of ministry of how they go about doing it. That's not bad. That's a different way of doing it. It's a different calling. It's a different thing that God has laid by way of a vision on either individuals or a congregation or a mission agency. But they are still working for the same cause and the same goal while having a different calling and different gifts and a different passion. Paul was convinced of his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He didn't want to compromise that. Barnabas was convinced of his mission of being an encourager that could nurture people into the place of leadership. And he did not want to compromise on that. Paul and Barnabas did not disagree on their theology. This isn't the same kind of issue that we just read about in chapter 15 between the Jerusalem church that was making a decision on Jews and Gentiles being one in Christ. That was a theological issue. They resolved that. This wasn't theological in nature. It was a matter of wisdom and a matter of calling. Both Paul and Barnabas could quote quote scriptural principles to back their position. I'm sure Barnabas had verses he could call on to show that he should stick with John Mark, and Paul had verses to show that he could not compromise his calling. But notice that neither one quit the ministry. When they had this disagreement, they decided to find a way forward which just simply wasn't with each other. Barnabas took John Mark and carried on in the work. Paul takes Silas and carried on in the work. Luke is pretty silent on who's right and who's wrong in this decision. He doesn't come right out and say it. The only clue that he might give about maybe, and this is just a maybe, uh, which side he might have thought was more right than the other, is that in the text, Luke chooses to say that they, Paul and Silas, were commended by the believers and sent out. And he doesn't reference that commending by the believers for Barnabas And John Mark. But that's really an argument from silence. And I don't think we want to put too much emphasis there. We don't want to read into it. 
I think the bigger picture is to understand that two godly people who are filled with the Spirit of God, who were mature leaders in the church, were called to two different styles of ministry, and they agreed to disagree, and they chose new ministry partners, but they kept on mission. We might wonder, how did it land for those two guys? I mean, did they ever find a better way forward between the two of them? Well, to be honest, you know, not much is said about their relationship in the future. But there are two short references, one that relates to Barnabas and one that relates to John Mark. And I want to read those. The first one is 1 Corinthians 9, 6 uh, about Barnabas. And it's a very short reference, but it says from Paul, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? You might go, well, there's not a whole lot there. It's true, but it does indicate a little bit of an understanding that this was written after the disagreement, that Paul still views and values Barnabas as a brother who's faithful in the work of God's kingdom. They share that. And then the second one relates to John Mark, and it's in 2 Timothy 4, at the end of Paul's life, Paul's standing trial. He's actually getting close to his own death, and at that time, he, he needs John Mark. He wants him, and so he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. So Paul, he's kind of come around on Mark. And he sees his value in the work of the Lord. He needs him. And then it's also recorded for us that John Mark is um, Peter's helper. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, 3, says, She, the church, who is Babylon, who is in Babylon. Boy, that was almost a heretical statement. She, the church, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And we know that Mark and Peter work close together, and that Mark ended up writing the Gospel of Mark, which was probably based on Peter's firsthand knowledge of the events that he was recording. So I hope that what we can learn and see here from Paul and Barnabas is that God was still working through them, even while they had disagreements. And I hope that we can see that as brothers and sisters in Christ, the oneness that we share in Christ isn't taken away even while we have differences on certain approaches or matters or styles. That the oneness that Paul and Barnabas shared in Christ was still there. You know, today is a communion Sunday. And we're about to participate in communion together. And while the elements of the bread and the cup speak to the death of Jesus, his body that was beaten and tortured and then nailed to a cross, his blood that was shed, his blood that was spilled out, his life that was given, was given for our salvation. And we often look at this and we think about our relationship to God, that Christ, this represents the death of Christ for me to make me right with God, and that's correct. But it also speaks to the oneness, the union that we share together in Christ. By nature of our union with Christ, we are united into the family of God. The remembrance of Jesus was to be done together, was to be done amongst brothers and sisters who would share in these elements together, remembering that they were one in Christ. So Paul has this uh, illustration or imagery that he uses in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. And he says it like this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So Paul makes, makes a point about the elements himself. The cup is one cup. We share in it together. The bread is one loaf. We each have a piece. We take it together. But it references our 
oneness in Jesus Christ. So the question I was asking here was, could Paul and Barnabas participate in the Lord's Supper together? And I believe, yes, they could. That their difference wasn't something around Christ. Could they each break a piece of bread of that one loaf and share it together? And I believe, yes, they could. They had a difference of opinion, but not on Christ, just their personal callings and how to live that out. Today's message is not just a historical lesson about two of our early church leaders who came to an impasse. impasse. It is truly a reality for all of us in this life as we face moments of agreeing to disagree with friends, family, or even brothers and sisters in Christ, while at the same time not wanting to break fellowship with them. Today, though, it hits really close to home for myself as your lead pastor and for my longtime and good friend, John Lusink, who serves as a deacon and the chair of our leadership team. First of all, I want to say that we did not plan for this moment, but rather we've sensed that God has guided us to it. Months ago, we did not know the sermon series that we would be in, the passage of scripture that was chosen for today to be preached on, the fact that John and I would find ourselves where we find ourselves today, and that it would be a communion Sunday. None of this was planned. We believe that it was God's leading. This past week, John and I came to an understanding about our working relationship, that at this time it is probably best that we release each other to lead in the way in which God has called us to lead, in the way in which we sense God is calling us and has gifted us to do so. We sat down and sought the counsel of the leadership team and realized that while our friendship is easy and strong, our working relationship in church leadership has not always been that. Not for a lack of desire or effort on either of our part, but nonetheless a reality that we have experienced. Earlier this week, after a time of consideration and prayer together, John submitted his letter of resignation to our leadership team. However, he and I praise God that we do love each other and we've maintained our friendship that that has not been broken. But because this is a deep matter of the heart, we felt it impossible to record the next part of our service that happens in the in-person service. What John and I decided to do was, in the in-person service, we felt led by God to, to do this together. And that after we had shared the news, that we would participate together in communion and in serving our congregation communion. And if you would like to watch a video clip of that, at 12 o'clock today, it will be posted on our website, sardisfellowship.com, where you can watch how that happened. It'll be on our homepage. You'll see it there on Sunday, March the 6th. Just go and look for it, and uh, it'll be right there on the front homepage. I know that this has been two hard announcements two weeks in a row. Last week with Rob Schaff letting us know that he and Diana and their family will be moving to Saskatchewan to be closer to their family in June. And now this week, this announcement. But I want to encourage this congregation with two things. One, we trust God in all of these matters because we know that he is in control. And secondly, while change is never easy, God is the one who is good and he will use it for his good. As some have been sharing with me, those who have been in leadership have been reminding me that when there's changes, there's opportunity. 
And I like that. It is a lens of faith that we continue to move forward. And so I ask you today, where is your faith at in this? Are you ready to pray and seek God and ask that he continue to guide this church family? Because if we truly collectively seek God, he will answer us and it will be good. And so I invite you today as you come to communion and partake in this, just as John and myself did in the in-person service, I invite you to take these elements and remember in remembrance of Christ and his death for you, but also in remembrance of the oneness that we share in Jesus Christ. I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 25, where it says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. As you partake in this communion in your own home, I want to leave you with this benediction from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is our prayer. That is our faith. We know that God will lead us. I invite you to uphold us in prayer as we go through these times of changes. And may the peace of Christ be yours. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.